the U.S. readies for an Olympics in uncertain times? We are 100% continuing to prepare for the Games, and I understand that in the face of uncertainty, there'll be rumbling, you know, about can everything happen. But I have every expectation that while these Games may look very different from Games of the past, I believe there will be athletes in Tokyo competing. That's Suzanne Lyons, chair of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. She's our guest on this edition of the Around the Rings radio podcast. I'm Ed Hula. Welcome. Now in her 10th year as a member of the board of the USOPC, Suzanne Lyons says she has seen great change since her first meeting in 2010. She joined the board that year as an independent director after a career as an executive with worldwide Olympic sponsor Visa. Since then, she's even served a stint as an interim CEO for the USOPC, and she's followed the U.S. team through five Olympics. As 2021 dawns, Lions and the USOPC deal with the consequences and challenges of the Tokyo Olympics postponed until July, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, and rising voices from athletes who want more to say about their role in sport. Despite the challenges, Lyons says she's optimistic about the coming year. Well, I think probably the right term is to a happier 2021, because certainly we do have challenges ahead of us. But I think we have every reason to think that we are, you know, in terms of a world crisis, pretty close to the pinnacle. And as the vaccine begins to roll out around the world, I think we're seeing the beginning of the end. Um, you know, it doesn't look that way just yet, but I have a lot of confidence that 2021 will be the year when we begin to start the path back to normal. And in the meantime, we do what we need to do to keep forging ahead and to uh, keep our movement alive and to fulfill the dreams of our athletes around the world. As we come up uh, on Tokyo, less than or about six months away, there still seems to be apprehension on the part of people around the world. And well, certainly there's a apparent reluctance on the people of Japan, whether the Olympics will take place, even though they've been postponed by one year. Uh, do you feel that sense of uncertainty that it's, it's still up in the air? There could still be a cancellation. Well, you know, what I can tell you is that we are 100% continuing to prepare for the Games. And I understand that in the face of uncertainty, there'll be rumbling, you know, about can everything happen. But I have every expectation that while these Games may look very different from Games of the past, I believe there will be athletes in Tokyo competing. And right now there are athletes all around the world giving their all into their training and those of us who support them, the NGBs, the, the federations, the uh, NOCs around the world and the IOC, you know, we can't give up. If they haven't given up, we must do what we need to do to make sure that we can make it safe uh, for them to compete this summer. And I think if human ingenuity can figure out how to do it, uh, there's no question there will be athletes in Tokyo this summer. Now, you know, around the edges, will there be um, spectators? Will there be fans? I don't know that yet. I don't think anyone is uh, ready to know exactly how it will look. But uh, we are very optimistic that uh, we will be able to put on games and competition at a time when the world really needs to see it, really needs to be able to turn on their televisions or go on their computers and see what 
the greatest athletes in the world can do and how they represent the best of humanity. So um, certainly I'm not ready to call defeat on this. And I don't think anyone who's working towards Tokyo is either. Is there, is there any plan B or plan C as far as you know? No, I think President Bach has been quite clear. There is no plan B. Um, you know, it's not really an option to postpone further. The games either happen or they do not. And I think it just behooves us to figure out what do those games look like? We've seen here in the U.S. Um, that with a lot of precautions, you can have sport. We had an NBA season, an NFL season, NCAA season. Not every athlete or team was able to compete because some people got sick or got exposed. But with the right precautions in place, sport continued. And that was very important, I think, for people to see uh, that some part of their world that's so important for people to participate in sport and to watch sport, that even though it didn't look exactly the same as the past, it could continue. And I don't see any reason why we can't take those lessons that we've learned in other sports competitions during the pandemic. We have to magnify it many times for the uh, for the size of the Olympics and the Paralympics. But I think we have lessons that we've learned around the world that will allow us to do this. What would the Olympics be like without spectators? I think that's a distinct possibility given the experience of other uh, sports endeavors. The NFL, the NBA are all taking part, taking place with very small crowds, if any. Yeah, well, first we probably should remember that the majority of the world doesn't watch the games in person. <laughs> the majority of the world has always viewed it through a smaller screen. And um, I think that can continue, even if there are no spectators or fans in an arena or on a, you know, in a, in a big facility. Um, that said, you know, I think it also opens the door to being creative about how can fans experience these games if they can't be there in person. And I think there can be virtual celebrations all around the world um, that still make it exciting and make it engaging and make people feel that they are a part of this magic. Um, but it's it's just another opportunity for us to use this crisis and turn it into something very, very creative and meaningful that maybe becomes part of our games experience for the future. So for the athletes, you know, I think the roar of the crowd is important, but I think given the choice between uh, having the opportunity to go and compete and work for their dream uh, or not, I think they would all say they'd much rather compete even if their fans can't be there beside them. Well, what's your reading about how U.S. athletes are preparing for Tokyo 2021? They've got to share that same optimism as yours if they're going to focus towards towards the medal, towards success, that the games are going are gonna to happen. What about supporting their determination, making sure they've got what they need in these difficult times? Absolutely. You know, I think for the athletes, the lead up to Tokyo, it's like an obstacle course for them. And it's the job of the federations and the NOCs to kind of knock those obstacles out of the way one by one. There are barriers to training. There are barriers to qualification, uh, potential barriers to travel once they get on the road to, you know, competitive uh, qualifying events or to the games themselves, barriers to lodging when we get them there. The landscape is evolving every single day. And it's our job as those around the world who support the athletes to keep knocking them down. And if we do that, you know, day by day, at the end of the day, the games will happen. And as we've said, you know, it may look very different, but uh, I think we can get them there. And their job is to just, you know, 
keep their heads in the game, keep their motivation. It's very hard to do when you begin to hear, you know, uncertainty around it. It's it's very nerve wracking because they are spending a lot of pain and effort and time preparing for this. And as you said, it's all about focus. And I think the majority of athletes I've talked to are just keeping their focus, continuing to prepare, and they're going to look to us to just keep knocking those obstacles out of the way. Well, the uh, Tokyo Olympics are, are, are viewed as the light at the end of the tunnel, something that could inspire the world if the pandemic is indeed coming to a, con- a con- conclusion. But how important is it for these Olympics to take place in Tokyo for the bottom line? I mean, the U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee, other NOCs around the world, the IOC, have all been hit financially by this postponement. Um, what does it mean to have the games take place even though they're a year late? Well, there's no question, you know, uh, there's no question that there is uh, important financial consideration. Um, the, the games happening really ensures the financial stability of movement around the world. If they were not to happen, um, it would be certainly an uphill battle and it would take some number of years to recover. But uh, I think many NOCs like ourselves and many federations have already tightened their belts and, you know, have thought through what they would need to do if their revenue was diminished in some way. But uh, again, you know, the main consideration for these games is making sure that they're safe and uh, and healthy for the athletes who need to compete. And I think that the financials, while important, have to be secondary to that. Will you, will you be able to overcome any shortfall that you suffered financially uh, this year with the with the postponed gains? Yes, in terms of the postponement, we've already kind of made the financial adjustments that we needed to. We had uh, pretty significant staff cuts at the USOPC. We cut programs that were not directly related to support of our federations and our athletes um, pretty significantly, and and I we're fine as you know up until. Uh, July, we will be able to get through there. And we know that other of our partner NOCs and federations are struggling, but everyone has made the adjustments they needed to get us up to and including uh, the games. And then, you know, should there be any uh, shortfalls there, everyone will have to adjust again. But for now, uh, everyone is muddling through. Yeah. Uh, national governing bodies are still, I'm sure, sure suffering. Or are, is, is USOPC able to uh, step forward and, and give them extra financial support if they need it this year? We have uh, worked very closely with our NGBs. We tried very hard not to cut any of their significant programs, and we did actually release some additional funding to the NGBs as well um, as they needed it. And, uh, you know, they're getting by. Uh, everyone is doing what they need to do to do their best to support their athletes. And uh, sometimes it's a good exercise to do a little bit of uh, belt tightening and it makes you a little bit more rigorous about managing your finances and ensuring that every dollar is going to support the athletes. How do the sponsors feel about this? What kind of conversations have you had with them about what kind of concerns they have, what their expectations are for the uh, Olympics? I've been so impressed by our sponsors, you know, the both the top sponsors and domestically, the sponsors have stuck by the Olympic and Paralympic movements. They were really pretty much uniformly flexible when the postponement happened last year in, you know, working with us to either extend their activation period. We had a few 
sponsors that overlapped in the same category where one was supposed to have ended and another began. Everyone worked very well and collaboratively on that. So to date, we've been just so um, gratified by the support of the sponsors around the world. They view this as a long-term commitment to the to the world's athletes. And, um, you know, we have just seen them stand by us through thick and thin, uh, which has been wonderful. We're talking with Suzanne Lyons today. She is the chair of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. There's a new White House taking over. Uh, Joe Biden, the new president, new administration, uh, replacing Donald Trump. Uh, what are your expectations for how uh, Joseph Biden and uh, the the staff he picks will 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 work with the Olympics moving forward? Because there are a number of issues that uh, you need the help of the U.S. government with, and uh, L.A. Olympics coming, and a possible Winter Olympic bid as well. Um, what is uh, what is your outlook on the next four years? and the relations with the White House? Well, you know, first of all, I'm very excited that uh, when he was vice president, Joe Biden had the opportunity to go to the to the games. And he had a wonderful time. He had an opportunity to meet many of our athletes when uh, they visited the White House after the games. And so he's he's familiar already very much with the role that sport can play around the world in bringing peace. I think his initial message coming into the White House is one of unification both of our own very divided country, but I think he will look further afield to um, perhaps repairing and trying to rebuild some of the relationships around the world. We've worked very closely with Congress, you know, many of whom are still there, even though uh, President Trump is departing over the last three years. And we have a, a much different relationship with them than I think we did three years ago. We've been frequent visitors to Washington, DC. We've met many, many of the congressmen and women and uh, we have worked closely with them to uh, share with them some of the changes and and uh, reforms that we've put into place over the last three years, notably since the gymnastics crisis three years ago. So we are in a very good place, I think, in terms of having good dialogue with Washington, D.C. We have every good expectation that we'll have good relations with uh, the presidential office. And as you may know, uh, we are sadly losing one of our own board members on the USOPC because Dr. Vivek Murthy, uh, who joined our board earlier this year, is the new Surgeon General. <laughs> so we have some well-placed friends who I think will ensure that uh, support for the Olympics around the world will continue. Uh, the, the, the Congress, last session of Congress uh, passed and, and uh, President Trump signed at the end of December uh, the, the legislation that uh, reforms U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee adds more congressional oversight to your work. Um, how is that going to unfold? Are you you happy with the new scrutiny that you'll be receiving? Well, you know, I think, first of all, Congress actually always had the right to oversee us. And I think they perhaps looked in the mirror and said, maybe we better pay some more attention to this than we have in recent years. So we certainly welcome that. I think having more eyes just look to um, be aware of what we're doing is, is a positive thing for our athletes. And there's a new commission that will be formed as part of that legislation um, that is being seated as we speak right now. And, you know, I have every hope and expectation that they'll be able to 
look with a kind of a, an outside eye to just you know help us think through some of the challenges that face us. We have a lot of collegiate sports that have been cut from the Olympic, what is very important pipeline to our Olympic program. Uh, youth sport in America has been severely curtailed because of COVID. There are a lot of issues that relate to sport in America that I think this commission um, can help take a look at and perhaps, you know, make suggestions to us on what we should do. And, you know, our role is to give them no reason to ever invoke the authorities that they have in the law. Um, I don't think anyone thinks that government interference in the actual operations of an NOC is a good idea and is, in fact, against the IOC charter. Um, and we've worked very hard to ensure that there is no reason for them to ever want to invoke that clause um, in the near term, for sure. Yeah, that was one of the concerns being expressed uh, internationally, that this this new law would uh, give Congress the same governmental control that's led to suspension of NOCs or controversies for other NOCs around the world. But you don't you don't see that as 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 becoming an issue. I think the key would be if they ever acted upon it, you know, as long as they do not actively interfere in in the workings of an NOC, they're not in violation of the charter. And as I said, they've always had the right to oversee uh, the Olympic Committee in the U.S. So um, as long as we're doing our job, I have no reason to think that they would uh, choose to interfere. More communication, good communication, constant communication between you and Congress, I guess, is one of the things that'll keep that in, in, in play. Yes, I think that's right. And, you know, just having spent much more time there making those relationships, uh, there will be more frequent reporting. So I think they'll be more knowledgeable about what we're doing. And uh, I think all will be well moving forward on that. One perhaps delicate, sticky issue that may be cropping up here is the coming of the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022, just, just over a year away. Um, today, the U.S. State Department has labeled as genocide the treatment of Uyghur minorities in northwestern China. Already, members of, of, of Congress have raised concerns about U.S. participation in the Beijing Olympics and whether there should be some boycott to protest the, 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 the treatment uh, by, the, by the Chinese or the Uyghur minorities. Are you worried that, that, the, that there will be a push for a boycott, a call for a boycott of the Winter Olympics in Beijing? And is the USOPC prepared to get involved with uh, dealing with any of these issues? Well, you know, let me first say that human rights are very key to the values of the Olympic and Paralympic movement. So, of course, everyone is concerned um, when we see um, actions that are occurring, uh, such as we are seeing in China related to the Uyghurs. But I think we have to question, you know, first of all, where can we be most impactful as a movement? And I think sport has always been most impactful as an agent for positive change and for bringing peace around the world. And I think it's in my opinion, more of a governmental issue to figure out what are the right tools to apply pressure on nations that you know may have human rights violations that need to be addressed. In terms of a boycott specifically, we have a lot of history that demonstrates that boycotts have not resolved political differences in the past. And using athletes as one of those tools to apply pressure really only destroys the hopes and dreams of a generation of athletes. 
And, you know, given what we've seen in the past, certainly we would be very prepared to strongly educate uh, our own government about what has happened in the past when boycotts were tried and the echo effect that happens as other nations then retaliate in the next games following. Um, None of those resolved any of the political issues that were at hand. So I think governments need to be more creative about figuring out what their levers are to apply pressure on countries that have human rights violations and not look to the athletes uh, to carry that on their back. So we are very opposed to a boycott um, because we know that the the victims of that will indeed be the athletes of the world. The uh, Russian doping saga appears to have come to an end with the appeal rendered by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And uh, it calls, I guess, the most notable aspect of this appeal is the way the the penalties have been reduced. And that's been a a sore spot with with athletes around the world, with national Olympic committees such as the USOPC. Uh, What's your feeling about how this has all ended and uh, what is it, you know, how do we, how do you move forward from here? Well, yeah, first of all, I think that doping is probably, if you asked athletes, what is the key thing that you think is wrong or unfair uh, or that you're concerned about? It's probably doping because it affects their daily lives so, so deeply. And as we know, the vast majority of them work so hard to ensure that they're clean, that they're there for their uh, whereabouts and their testing. So this is a very emotional issue for athletes. And globally, we all have to continue to fight in any way that we can for clean sport. So this cast ruling, you know, I think the diminishment of the of the sanctions is disappointing. And I think WADA expressed some disappointment on this as well, because as the report has been released, the facts did not change. The fact pattern remains the same. The violations are the same as were discovered by WADA. And reducing uh, the sanctions, you know, I think leaves a bad taste in the mouth, particularly among many of the athletes of the world. Uh, That said, you know, we do need to move forward. We need to focus on clean sport going forward, ensuring that all of those agencies, WADA, the ITA, all of the NATOs, learn from this cautionary tale, that we learn together and advance the Olympic and Paralympic movement around the world and ensure clean sport for all. So, uh, there's just so long that you can gnash your teeth about the the ruling. Um, and I think going forward, we have to just ensure that it never happens again. Is it possible you're going to have U.S. athletes, athletes from other countries in the world protesting at the Tokyo Olympics, the presence of their Russian competitors? Uh, how will that be addressed? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I think as we've really, everyone has said from the beginning, and it's very difficult to prove who was clean and who was not, but in theory, the athletes from Russia who will be competing under a more or less neutral uh, flag have not been proven to be guilty. And I think most athletes will probably respect the presence of the individual athletes. Any protests that they may feel inclined to do may be more towards the organizations that let those athletes down. Um, but we don't know. You know, the athletes uh, <laughs> will do what they will do. And that's, of course, one of the big conversations that we've been having. 
as it relates to Rule 50. Yeah, Rule 50, indeed. Uh, the U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee, uh, not exactly a task force, but it's a group of athletes and other experts you put together to figure out how to, what kind of changes need to be made to the IOC rule that prohibits, bans uh, protests by athletes during during the games. And the position of the U.S. essentially is that uh, athletes, or the recommendation that's being made is that athletes uh, be allowed to express themselves as long as it's not uh, divisive. It's not uh, um, hateful. It's not uh, a protest that, you know, I guess evokes violence and, uh, and divisiveness. Uh, how is that, that? That's not quite how the IOC would like things to go. Uh, where is that recommendation going with the USOPC? Well, you know, first, Ed, on, on Rule 50, I'd say that our objective has been that we'd like to make sure that the athletes have clarity in advance, they understand the guidelines, they understand the rules and consequences uh, that will guide decisions in these matters. Here in the U.S., we're responding to a domestic issue of very critical importance. There's a lot of passion and emotion in the U.S. as it relates to um, uh, police violence and brutality against Black people and also just general issues of social justice. And so that's very, very heightened here in the U.S. But we're also mindful that these same issues are not necessarily as on the front burner in all other countries. And it may create the risk that people in other countries will try to protest in ways uh, that are not respectful or, or driven by aligned values. So where we've tried to build a little bit more clarity on our side here in the U.S., is that we've stated that athletes will not be sanctioned by the USOPC if they peacefully and respectfully demonstrate in support of equality and justice for all human beings, because we view those as very fundamental Olympic and Paralympic values. And we distinguish very strongly between that and hate speech or other divisive speech and actions, which of course will be punished. And any incident that occurs uh, at the games would still be evaluated. We have a process, we have a games review board so if something should happen, some form of protest, peaceful or otherwise, it will each one will be reviewed. And the IOC delegates to us as an NOC the authority to decide how to handle infractions by our own athletes. And we take that very seriously. But what we have decided um, and that we're advising in advance is that if there's an infraction that is rooted in the values-based protests that honor the basic tenets of the movement, including equality, inclusion, respect for all, that those are not actions that we will choose to sanction. Um, but that does not mean that we are taking away the right of the host countries or of the IOC itself to enforce sanctions and our athletes need to understand that. And we wanna to continue to work with the IOC and the IPC as they consider whether there should be amendments to rule 50 and section 2.2, which is the relevant portion of the, uh, of the Paralympic charter. So uh, we've kind of tried to get some clarity for our athletes on where we stand on this issue. We know that it opens a little bit of a can of worms, but I think around the world, personally, I think we have to evolve. We have to be mindful of the fact that uh, young athletes around the world feel strongly about issues that are aligned with our values and that some of them may choose to, to express that. And it's important to know in advance and not just wait until it happens uh, how you're going to respond to it. 
you were you were invited to take part in the Olympic Summit, as it's called. It's a group of Olympic leaders put together on an annual basis by uh, the IOC president. And in the past, before there was a pandemic, these uh, meetings took place face to face, but there it was virtual in December. And you were one of the National Olympic Committee leaders selected to uh, to take part in the in the summit, which is a I guess a woodshed for ideas uh, and you know a chance for you and others to talk about what's going on with the Olympic movement. Do you have the chance to explain Rule Fifty, the U.S. position on Rule Fifty, at this meeting and talk with uh, colleagues there about about these things that the U.S. Olympic Committee is is pushing forward with? Yes. You know, one of the values of the Olympic summit is that it's much more intimate. It's only about 20, 25 people with President Bach. And it's an opportunity to share perspectives and points of view, perhaps in a little bit more candid way than you can, you know, when there are hundreds of members present. And so um, everyone can express what they're doing. Everyone can react to what you're doing. So uh, it can be a little bit more contentious. And I think that's a healthy thing. I, I think rather than um, just having everyone being polite on the surface and being uh, <laughs> critical uh, behind the scenes, this is a real opportunity for people to share the concerns that they have. And the issues that are addressed at the summit are difficult issues. They are often issues that are do not have black and white answers or that may have different meaning around other parts of the world than they do in someone's own respective parts of the world. So, you know, I think it's a really good opportunity, and it was this year, for people to respectfully share what they are doing as, and then share concerns or uh, different opinions that they had. And that certainly happened. We were not the most popular people at the dance, so to speak, but uh, I think it's important that we share our perspective and that they had an opportunity to share theirs with us as well. When you say you're not the most popular at the dance, is that involving the Rule 50 changes? about the uh, Rochenkov Act and uh, that legislation, which uh, gives, uh, you know, extra extra powers, extra jurisdiction, it would seem, to uh, U.S. prosecutors going after uh, uh, in, in the anti-doping fight. Well, certainly that, that would be another of the uh, touchy issues that was discussed while we were there. And... Um, you know, I think the Rodchenkov Act, we, we were supportive of the bill in general. Uh, we had concerns, as did the IOC, about the extraterritorial, extraterritorial rights that did end up being included in the bill, and I think that's unfortunate. I don't know that those are things that would ever really be acted upon, but were really meant to be a warning to say the, the global agencies that are responsible for preventing systematic doping around the world need to step up. Um, you know, or in a sense, we've given ourselves the right to. I think the certain desire would be uh, to have a strong WADA, to have strong NATOs, to have a strong ITA, and to continue to just raise the voices, if you will, to say that doping has no place in the movement and we should all be fighting every day for it. So, um, you know, when I hear criticism about that, I, I listen respectfully to it, but I will have to say that I can't be apologetic for fighting uh, for clean sport for our athletes. Does the United States, do the governments need to contribute more to the work of WADA and the anti-doping, worldwide anti-doping campaign 
the IOC contributes half or more of the budget for, for WADA, and much has been made about a call for independence of WADA to break away from the support of the IOC for the bulk of its funding. Are the U.S. and other countries ready to, to step forward and, and, and provide the, the money that's, that's needed to adequately fund WADA? Well, certainly WADA deserves to be funded. We're very supportive of our own country as well as others uh, supporting WADA. And to the extent that they have uh, greater needs, certainly we would be supportive of trying to ensure that we were doing our part in that as well. Um, I think that it, it's it's difficult to be fully independent because the money has to come from somewhere. Um, and it really should be coming from a, a broader swath of countries who can afford it. We don't expect every country to be able to uh, chip into the kitty, if you will, but uh, WADA needs to be supported by a diversified uh, group of revenues. Uh, in, in, in all the worry about the Tokyo Olympics, the pandemic and, and other issues, we've kind of lost sight of the fact that uh, LA 2028 is coming a few years down the road right now. Not much has been heard about what's happening in Los Angeles, but what are what is uh, your feeling about how things are out there in California? Well, aside from the unfortunate COVID situation in Los Angeles, which is really quite terrible right now, uh, LA-28 has uh, moved forward very, very quickly and effectively to begin the work that they need to do. They're fortunate they have a, a little extra runway than most organizing committees do. They have a few extra years to prepare. And uh, fortunately for LA-28, the pandemic hopefully will be a, a distant memory by the time we we get to those games. But they have launched their brand identity. They've begun the work of developing sponsorships for those games, which is going quite well. Um, and sponsors understand that the pandemic, you know, is is at the beginning of the end, and that uh, they've been very interested and excited about the games that will occur in LA. LA is the home of entertainment and innovation and technology. So I have. Uh, such excitement thinking about when we have the games come back to the U.S., what a wonderful set of games those can be after perhaps a, a difficult set of games this year. But uh, I think with Paris coming up and uh, and with Italy and then with L.A. following, those games will be both a, a new normal because we will have all collectively learned many things through this difficult time, um, but also a sense of tradition that I think will be able to be restored. So LA is in very good shape and uh, has terrific leadership and we're excited to see what they'll come up with. One day, perhaps Salt Lake City, the bid for the US uh, for the Winter Olympics, that's for either 2030 or 2034. Do you get any reading from your international contacts from Say you're meeting in with uh, with with the Olympic Summit about where things might stand for a possible U.S. Winter Olympic bid, or is it going to go to another country? Well, you know what we've consistently said is um, we are ready, willing, and able. <laughs> we have a city that uh, has hosted the games before and is very excited. Their population is really, really highly motivated to bring the games back to Salt Lake City. And we've told our partners at the IOC that we are ready when it's the right time or if it's the right time. So we've thrown our hat in the ring. Um, I don't think right now with 
all of the things that are being contended with to prepare for Tokyo, I don't think it's the highest priority um, to really figure out whether what get, what countries will put their heads, hats in the ring for uh, 2030 or 2034. But I do expect that uh, following the games, attention will turn there and we'll be ready uh, to be at least one of the countries who's wants to put ourselves forward. And uh, if, if they're, if needed, we are there. <laughs> uh, just to close here, you, you're a veteran, a real veteran with U S Olympic committee and eventually U S Olympic Paralympic committee. I believe you came onto the board first in 2009. Very end of it was like right January of 2010. 2010 came yeah. there when you were wor just working with, 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 with visa familiar with their Olympic program. Uh, now, now 10 years later, how, how is, how is the U S Olympic Paralympic committee changed since then? What have you seen in the, in the way the work has changed the mission, the goals? You know, I think there has been very significant change and I think all organizations in a sense go through pendulum swings. And I think prior to my joining the committee in, in 2010, almost 10 years before that, there was a big pendulum swing. Uh, it had been a primarily volunteer-run organization, very, very large governance, hundreds of people involved in the governance. And, uh, and there was a very major change to make it more corporate-type governance, if you will, more independence. And that pendulum swung, and it became a much smaller board, uh, more people like myself with big business backgrounds and uh, different set of voices. And with that type of a pendulum swing are pluses and then there are minuses. And you don't always know what the minuses are until they rear their heads. And I think what we've now learned in hindsight, as the pendulum begins to swing back a ways, is that perhaps we lost a little bit of focus on the athletes at the center. I think everyone always was trying to do their best to support athletes, but I think it needed to be reinforce that our main mission is not just the competitive success of our athletes, but also their health and wellness and well-being. And that was brought home very, very strongly as the sexual abuse crisis occurred in 2018. So I think in a very positive way, the athletes have come to right back where they should be, right in the center focus. And we've got more athlete voice in our governance. Actually, right now on our board, um, we have... Uh, more than 50% of the board members either are or have been Olympians and Paralympians. So we have very strong athlete voice. And I think the other thing that has changed fairly dramatically is there had been a shift to giving a great deal of autonomy to our national governing bodies and in a sense, staying out of their business. Um, and we saw that that also had a, a downside by not having more effective oversight things happen that shouldn't have happened. So we have in the last three years significantly strengthened our oversight of all of the NGBs with their willing uh, participation, I might add. Um, we've helped increase and improve their governance. We've ensured that we have more auditing and oversight of all the safe sport requirements. And of course, the Center for Safe Sport came into being uh, to allow an independent body to be a, a place for these cases when they occur to be adjudicated and for education to happen. Uh, all across America, not just in the Olympic world. And and education that we were, are very happy, by the way, to share with colleagues around the world who just now are beginning to have similar situations either occur in their federations or in their countries. We learned a lot of things through the School of Hard Knocks related to oversight and athlete protection. And those are 
lessons that we're very eager to share uh, with our colleagues around the world. So I would say those are the main changes that I've seen in the 10 years that I've been here, more, more oversight and compliance of necessity and a very welcome bringing back to the center, uh, the athlete voice and the athlete needs. And do you think that kind of change is going to prevent from happening again, anything like uh, what, what took place with gymnastics? Well, I would certainly say that I think that it's so much less likely that people would not recognize the signs. There were signs that parents didn't know to look for. There were signs that coaches didn't know to look for. There was reluctance to report when people suspected something might be awry. And there was a, a lack of listening to young girls when they said something was wrong. I think culturally, we have made a dramatic shift um, across sport on those areas. So I think it would be much more difficult for someone to commit a wrong of that scale without people speaking up. People are now 100% legally required to report if they hear anything uh, on that on that front. And so I think athletes are much safer than they were. Can you ensure that sexual abuse will never happen again? Absolutely not. And it will happen again. But I think it is much less likely to. And I think perpetrators who are repeat offenders like Larry Nasser was, have a much, much higher likelihood of being caught and being prevented from moving to other sports or other geographic areas and continuing. There are challenges out there for sure. I mean, you just talked about one of them, the coming of the games, making sure they take places uh, as well planned in, 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 in July. Uh, you've got to be bullish yourself, optimistic about the prospects of the Olympics overall? Well, you know, I positively am. I wouldn't still be here um, working through these difficult issues if I didn't 100% believe that what these athletes are able to achieve and that their journeys we're not fighting for. And I know I join many of my colleagues from around the world that I talk with all the time. Uh, that's why we all do this. We are so inspired by these athletes. We so believe in the movement as the opportunity uh, to bring peace to the world through sport. And that's why we do these jobs, even when sometimes they're not as much fun as uh, they might be. There's a, a good reason to fight for what uh, these athletes need. And I'm continuing to do that. And as I tell everyone that I work with every day, you just do what you think is right and try to make one more step forward uh, to ensure that both the Olympics and the Paralympics are uh, getting the support that they deserve. Well, thank you very much for, for being with us today, Suzanne Lyons, Chair of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. It's It's been a good, good conversation with you, and you're always welcome here. Well, thank you so much, Ed. Great to speak with you and, uh, you know, read my Around the Rings every day. So thanks for keeping us all informed. And there you have it from none other than U.S. OPC Chair Suzanne Lyons. She reads her Around the Rings every day. How about you? This is your editor, Ed Hula, thanking you for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. Please stay healthy, please stay safe, and read us every day, your best source of news about the Olympics for three decades, aroundtherings.com.